Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump's approach to immigration is central to a possible government shutdown. We'll discuss Dreamers, the TPS, and the Wall. She was a glamorous movie star, an inventor, and a recluse. We'll talk with the director of a new documentary on Hedy Lamar. And a Puerto Rican arts festival comes to Chicago. We'll hear about Fiestas de la Calle, the Puerto Rican Mardi Gras. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The U.S. government faces a shutdown, and immigration policies are at the center of the controversy. The negotiations have obviously been ugly. People's lives are on the line. There's been some high-profile raids by ICE and high-profile deportations like Jorge Garcia in Michigan, the 39-year-old father of two who had been here 30 years, was deported on Martin Luther King Day. We're going to talk about the situation now with uh, Mary Meg McCarthy. She's executive director of the Heartland Alliance's National Immigrant Justice Center. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Jerome. Nice to be here. And nice to see you, Susan Zesch, Executive Director of the University of Chicago's Posen Family Center for Human Rights. Good to see you. Good afternoon. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've been trying to you know, ponder how we got to this point and how we got to a situation where um, these people, it seems like a hostage situation where it's government shutdown versus DACA. Uh, how, Susan, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's an apt characterization, and the hostage taker is sitting in the White House, and I'm not sure who the SWAT team is who's going to come in and rescue the hostages, but the hostages are 800,000 young adults who and their family members who have been here for years, who we know are contributing in many ways to the society, and there's no economic, social, humanitarian reason at all that they should be forced out of the U.S. You had a show yesterday about one of Mary Meg's staff attorneys, Yudakide, who's a DACA recipient and doing great work um, providing legal assistance to immigrants in Chicago. Um, How do you think we got here, Mary Meg? I I, I keep looking at this trade-off. You know, the president wants a wall. And uh, the, the, you know, Dick Durbin and uh, some Democrats want a compromise on immigration. Uh, we, we've been doing this deal in some form or another for many years. It's security versus compromise on immigration. I think what we have as an administration has created a crisis for us right now. And it's a crisis that has a solution. There was a bipartisan path to citizenship for the DREAMers. That was proposed last week, and it seemed to no longer be a viable one in the eyes of the president. And, you know, we have been going through this for years, but the president said he wanted a resolution. There was something proposed, and now he's changed his mind. And I think we're just in a situation where people don't know what to do. But it's really that the White House has created this crisis that we're facing today. 
One of the things that's happened is ICE raids on 7-Elevens. Um, Susan, this is a uh, sounds like a coordinated effort to uh, stoke up the fear and controversy. It is, and particularly if you look at the numbers. I don't have the exact, exact figures, but the news reports were that ICE agents went to some 120 7-Elevens in neighborhoods all over the country and netted a grand total of 20-some people for them to arrest who were in the country without authorization. That's not a very good ratio. And it's apparent that the motivation behind the raids was not to find undocumented people working in 7-Eleven, but to show an ICE presence in neighborhoods all over the country and scare people about being out on the street if there's anything about their immigration status that could be questioned. Um, Mary Meg, are you seeing the kind of uh, latitude that is usually given to people, um, DACA recipients, every kind of um, particular status of person? Uh, do they is is the enforcement mechanism just like the letter of the law now, and everybody gets the letter of the law no matter what? Unfortunately, that is what we're seeing. It's a very harsh environment right now. But the community has really come together in a very strong way, and we've seen people support each other and and respond. And I think more than ever we were seeing the need for good legal services for individuals so that before they get deported, they know their rights and they are able to exercise those rights. But unfortunately, the environment is such that prosecutorial discretion is no longer being exercised in a favorable manner for members of our communities who've been here for years, who have very strong ties. You know, Jerome, every single law enforcement unit exercises a certain amount of discretion. We know, for example, that a policeman driving on an alarm that a bank is being robbed is not going to stop because he sees somebody jaywalking. And what the Obama administration had done with immigration enforcement was to come up with guidelines for discretion, that if immigration agents encountered somebody who was likely to eventually be here legally, had a lot of reasons that they should be here, that they shouldn't be arresting those people because they can't possibly arrest 11 million undocumented people in the U.S. They should go for the people who were dangerous to the community or who had criminal records. Now what's happened is from the top down, and part of it is what can be mandated by Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, and I love to say his full name because it tells you a lot about the man, is that immigration judges are being constrained in their um, traditional possibility of exercising discretion to terminate a removal hearing against somebody who presents a certain amount of humanitarian factors. In other words, as in many other areas of public policy, they're taking the humanitarian impulse, which a lot of Americans do believe in, completely out of immigration enforcement. Is it that much worse than what happened during the initial Obama years because President Obama deported a lot of people. He was 400,000 people a year were getting deported right then. Uh, was What was going on then? Well, I think, I think it's worse because we don't have the opportunity to really, really fight in the courts on these cases. And when I say courts, I mean the immigration courts. We do have opportunities at the federal courts if you can get there fast enough. But there is such an effort right now to move these cases quickly through the immigration courts and people are getting deported quickly or they never get an opportunity to see an immigration judge. And I think that's the really dangerous part is people's due process rights are being violated and they're being deported 
quickly without having an opportunity to exercise their legal rights. How does somebody get an opportunity to exercise their legal rights? Well, many times they need to know that they have that right, that they could say, look, I want to talk to a judge and get an attorney. Unfortunately, many people aren't aware of those rights, and they don't have someone there fighting for them. And that's extremely important in this current environment because there's a real effort just to remove people. Well, so does that mean 700,000 DACA recipients all, are all, all need a lawyer right now? Well, if they don't have current DACA and they had it at one time, it's really important that they get a DACA, get a legal um, consultation because they have an opportunity. There's a window right now for people to renew their DACA status, and that is critical. There are 122 people. Or there are 122 people a day who lose their DACA status right now because of a federal court decision in California that said those individuals can renew and barred the government from ending the program, it's those, op- the, those individuals have that opportunity now. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Mary Meg McCarthy, Executive Director of the Heartland Alliance's National Immigrant Justice Center, and Susan Zesch, Executive Director of the University of Chicago's Posen Family Center for Human Rights. Um, You know, we've watched the Trump administration walk right through the TPS situation and the people with temporary protected status, the Haitians um, got their orders first. They got it suspended first. The Hondurans uh, just recently. Uh, Susan, you've nosed around with TPS, which I think most people had no idea really even existed as a thing until recently. Um, What is it? So we've had temporary protected status in some form or another since the 1970s. It used to be called extended voluntary departure. And what it was is it's an instrument for a wholesale decision by the government taking into account foreign policy considerations and the humanitarian needs of individuals to allow all people present in the U.S. from a particular country to stay here on a shorter or longer-term basis, whether it's with respect to political changes in their home country where things have become dangerous, natural disasters, or other reasons. It goes all the way back to orders um, from the government in the 1970s that Ethiopians could stay here after the violence of the overthrow of Haile Selassie, that Poles could stay here during the period of the demonstrations by solidarity against the Polish government. So it's been around for a long time. And the legislation that we're now operating under, temporary protected status, is actually a product of the enormous conflict over Central American refugees who in the 1980s were, again to use your hostage metaphor, being held hostage by the Reagan administration, actually not held hostage, they were being thrown out of the country as quickly as possible because the Reagan administration did not want judicial decisions saying that governments we were supporting in El Salvador and Guatemala were massively violating the human rights of their residents. And I'm talking with... um with, with uh, Mary Meg McCarthy here and Susan Zesch, Executive Director of the University of Chicago's Posen Family Center for Human Rights. She has a little cold. Right. <laughs> He's coughing occasionally. Exactly. I mean, I, I just want to follow up on both DACA and TPS because I think what we're seeing right now in this country is that the majority of Americans really do care about their neighbors and their communities, and they want to see something different, and they want to see immigration reform. We have very, very restrictive laws right now in the immigration system that really harm 
people who've been here for years, like the Salvadorans or the Haitians or the Nicaraguans or the Dreamers. So we need Congress to intervene. That's what Congress needs to do now to act on behalf of these individuals. How do you get a Republican Congress to do that right now? Because it, uh, it seems like they side with the president on things and the president seems to be happy to, you know, not have brown and black people come in or stay in the country. You know, I, I think long term this is going to hurt the Republican Party and they need to see now that we can't we can't operate a government that is – operating chaos. I mean, it's not sustainable and it's not healthy for our democracy. And at some point, people have to wake up and say, we need to make sure that our we are serving as public servants. We can't continue to be just politicians fighting with each other. We need to resolve these problems. Do you have any advice for people out there who might be in a situation? Um, we're talking about dreamers um, upping their status. Is there anything else people can do? I mean, I think the American public can obviously speak out on this issue and stand with the community on so many different issues that we're facing. And, you know, what we're facing today as being held hostages is unnecessary. We have a democracy, and we all have to act in that democracy and find ways to be supportive to members of our community, to elected officials that demand that they speak on our behalf. And that's what we're seeing now in our communities. Um, in Illinois, we've got Dick Durbin, and Dick Durbin has been uh, so prominent in this debate. I think a lot of people probably feel, well, Dick Durbin's doing it for us. We're, we gotta, we've got that guy. But we need to be supportive of Dick Durbin and other Dick Durbins in our communities and, and, and spread that word and support him by spreading that word with other elected officials who may not be a Dick Durbin, but who do, I think he does represent the majority of Americans. Uh, when it comes to TPS, um, is there a fix for some of those people who face deportation now in TPS? Okay, what's really important to remember is TPS ended, but there is a continuation until 2019 for the Salvadorans and for the Haitians. So they still have that protected status until 2019 when it ends. So in, between now and 2019, that's approximately a year plus, those individuals should remain in the country and seek legal advice to see if there's a way to obtain more permanent status, given, as Susan said, the length of time that they've been here, they may be eligible for other forms of relief. But who knows what's going to happen? We see that the changes in the law are constantly being debated, and there may be other opportunities for people. Hydram, and the end of TPS means that people just revert to the status they had before. So if somebody didn't have an outstanding removal or deportation order, there would be no reason, even if they waited up until 2019, for them to immediately leave the country. They really should. Some of their U.S.-born kids might be turning 21, et cetera. So there are lots of options available, and I believe the home country governments, particularly of El Salvador um, and Haiti, will want to help their co-nationals figure out whether there are ways they can remain here. Do you have any gut feeling about how this is going to end with the um, shutdown? Uh, somebody's got to blink. Something's got to happen. I, I, I want to see the DREAM Act passed. <laughs> I mean, at midnight tonight, we all say, look, 
this is important to us and this is going to happen. Susan? I think so. I mean, and I think what we're looking at is a long game about the census, about who gets to vote, et cetera. I mean, the Trump administration is not just looking at this government shutdown. They're looking ahead to who are going to be the decision makers, who's going to be at the table over the long term. And by trying to scare potential citizens from leaving the country, and a lot of people who don't have permanent status have kids who have Mm. citizenship, they're trying to impact, I think, the very heart of our democracy. And so when you say census, what do you mean census? Well, the census will determine, as we know, how political districts are drawn. And the count of Latino, African-American people determines how um, those districts are going to be drawn. And the census counts everyone, non-voters. It counts children. It counts non-citizens. And since 1980, every 10 years, there's been a battle over whether the undocumented will be counted in the census. And every single time, the federal courts have said, it says persons, you count all persons. So the formation of the basis of political power in this country in the post-census redistricting will depend in large part on who gets counted. And this administration is not doing anything to encourage um, increasing a traditional undercount in minority communities. In fact, they're doing as much as they can to discourage people. So it's another issue that we need to keep our eyes on. Once this short-term crisis, as Mary Meg said before, which was created by the White House, once that short-term crisis is resolved. And I think relating to the census is it has an impact economically on us as a country in terms of federal dollars. And you have to remember, there are 50,000 households in Chicago with an undocumented person in that home. So we have mixed status families living next door to us that are important for them to be able to exercise their civic rights. Mary Meg McCarthy is executive director of the Heartland Alliance's National Immigrant Justice Center. Susan Zesch is executive director of the University of Chicago's Posen Family Center for Human Rights. Thanks for talking with us about immigration and the government shutdown. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. After the break, we'll do film contributor Milo Stalek. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. With me is film contributor Milo Stalik from Facets. And there's a film showing at the Music Box. It is a documentary of one of Hollywood's most interesting people. 
Well, she was, uh, it's Hedy Lamar, which is, of course, not her true, uh, real name. Her real name was Hedy Kiesler. But, and she was an immigrant uh, to Hollywood, just like many of the great uh, men and women who made Hollywood, who were Im- immigrants. Uh, she came from Austria. She was, by that time, very famous for having made a scandalous appearance in uh, a film called Ecstasy, um, which you, was not only, which she appeared not only nude, but which you could say was the first simulated orgasm ever in motion picture. So that's a, certainly a landmark. Uh, and she was, by many, co- uh, conceived as being the most beautiful woman in the world. And um, as the film, uh, which is called Bombshell, uh, the Hedy Lamar story, uh, shows, she was a lot more than that. She was a lot more than a beautiful woman. And we have the uh, director of Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story on the line with us, uh, Alexandra Dean. Uh, nice to meet you, Alexandra Dean. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I guess the uh, extra about Hedy Lamar is what drew you to the story, that the the thing that she was an inventor, she was uh, a person with a brain and way more complicated. She was. She was incredibly smart. And she was so beautiful and so famous for being beautiful that nobody really knew about this other identity. And even when she tried to tell the world, people didn't take her seriously. And um, the film, you, you talk uh, in it with uh, someone from who had done an article from Forbes and done some interviews with her and she, and you kind of go back to those tapes and talk with him about the things that she said about the things that uh, she did. Yes. I was so lucky, you know, to find these tapes because six months into making the film, we didn't have them. And there was, as far as I knew, no way to tell Hedy Lamar's story in her own voice, which was so critical because people were saying to me, including well-known scientists that there was no way she had come up with this incredible invention that she's credited with called frequency hopping, that probably what she did was steal it from her husband in, uh, in Austria, who was an an arms manufacturer, put it in her shoe and flee to the U S and give it to the allies. And in that case, she should be called a spy rather than an inventor. And we had a lot of good evidence that that wasn't true. We had notebooks in her hand, but we didn't have Hetty's defense of herself and that's what we found in these tapes. Six months into making the film, we were calling everybody who could possibly have any kind of record like that. And we're so incredibly lucky to contact Fleming Meeks, who picked up the phone and said, I've been waiting 25 years for you to call me. Because he'd been sitting on this archive and knew it was sort of historic that Hedy Lamar had told him in a personal phone conversation exactly what she did and all about her life. And so we got this uh, archive and scrapped basically the film we were making and started again, letting her tell her own story in her own voice. Uh, You know, in addition to the work that she did with the um, changing the frequency thing, uh, I am not a scientist, clearly. (laughs) Um, She did some work with (laughs) torpedoes and we've got a clip from the the film about what she wanted to do during World War II with, uh, she wanted to stop the the German boats from knocking out the the, the German submarines from knocking out the boats. And uh, here's a clip from the film, uh, Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story. One day in the summer of 1940, a shipload of children was torpedoed. All hands lost, including 83 children. At the time, the German U-boats were on the verge of winning the war. They seemed to be unsinkable. 
because they easily outmaneuvered the outdated British torpedoes. In times of crisis, most of us feel powerless. But a few discover in themselves unexpected strength. And Hetty being Hetty, she said, I'm going to do something about that. The Navy basically told her, you know, you'd be helping the war a lot more, little lady, if you got out and sold war bonds rather than sat around trying to invent new kinds of torpedoes. Leave that to the experts. Get out there and raise money. You don't get to be Hedy Lamar and smart. No. <laughs> no. That's a clip from Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story. We're talking with the director, Alexandra Dean. Um, can you kind of sum up her um, scientific achievements here? And uh, she's got the frequency thing, the uh, the the torpedo thing. <laughs> yes. So Hetty was one of those naturally inventive people. And I think Silicon Valley is full of these people now. It's something that America has always seemed to thrive upon. Um, we seem to attract an, an inventive populace. And that was something in the Second World War that the War Department was aware of. And Edison, during the First World War, had set up something called the Invention Department. And they wanted to actually get people to apply with patents, civilians, with ideas. And Hedley Lamar, as a naturally inventive person, even though she had no training, was submitting ideas during the Second World War to the War Department for the Navy and the Air Force and the Army to use. And one of these ideas was this frequency hopping idea, which you just heard about in the clip which was about communications and hacking, a very current problem that we still have today. When you communicate secretly during wartime, especially if you're a warship trying to communicate with one of your weapons remotely, how do you make sure that that communication line is not hacked, destroyed, manipulated in some way? It's a very current problem. And at that time, it was about radio signals. If you wanted to have a remote control torpedo, which was the ultimate in torpedo weaponry at the time, you needed to be able to communicate with it in a way that the Nazis wouldn't be able to hack into your communications and turn that torpedo back on you and blow up your own ship. So Hetty knew that problem, and she wanted the Allies to have this super-duper kind of high-tech um, remote control torpedo so that they could stop these terrifying Nazi U-boats from, from having this chokehold on England. And she came up with a way of hopping around on radio frequencies from one to another, every split second jumping to another radio frequency so that you couldn't be caught, basically, so that even if the Nazis did hack into one of your radio signals, you'd immediately jump to another one. And they wouldn't know which one you were going to, so they couldn't keep up. Only the ship and the torpedo would know the, the secret pattern for that, communicating. That's so cool. And, and that's and, still used today. And that's still used today, and this is patented? This is a patent? Yes, this is a patent. And the amazing thing is Hetty patented this with a musician, and neither of them had gone to engineering school, had any advanced degree. They both left school in their teens, but they had this naturally inventive streak, both of them. They came up with this, and they patented it under Hetty's maiden name, Hedvig Kiesler, and her married name at the time, which was Markey, not Hetty Lamar. It doesn't say Hetty Lamar in the patent. It, has, it says Hedvig Kiesler Markey and George Antile. And like that, it was a patent that was basically in disguise and wasn't really discovered until the 90s. Hmm. So you obviously spent quite a bit of time with a career 
uh, and character of uh, Hedy Lamarr. And there seem to be like contradictory and complex elements in her. So on the one hand, she's obviously this very smart woman who's a great inventor and has a lot of great ideas. On the other hand, she's a Hollywood major sex star. And mm-hmm. she is, and so in some way, those aren't necessarily related. And of course, she's also very contentious because she doesn't, she's independent. She doesn't want to always do all of the stuff that the studio is trying to force her to do. So, how do you see her as kind of a modern personality? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, this could not be a more current story. Uh, this is about a woman who was playing with a full deck of cards when she came to Hollywood to try and make her mark on the world. She had incredible bravery. She'd escaped her Nazi collaborator husband in the middle of the night. She'd convinced Louis B. Mayer to make her a star in her, on the crossing. She obviously had com- really a really brilliant uh, mind that may have even bordered on genius. And she had this face that was so extraordinarily beautiful that people wrote about it, songs about it, and you know it opened all sorts of doors. So here was somebody who had everything going for her. And she did incredible things. But she was not recognized. She was not promoted for what she really contributed. She was sort of sidelined in Hollywood and given these sexy parts, which made her famous, but not in the way she wanted to make her mark. And so she gets increasingly embittered. And this is a a story about a woman who cannot make her mark because of the way Hollywood and the world at that time was constructed. And it makes women all over the country, as I take this film around the country, makes them come to me afterwards and say, can we get a stiff drink? I need to talk to you because (laughs) this is still a problem we have today. You know, you can be playing with a full deck of cards and not win the card game. Why? And that's what this story is about. I wonder how you see the film that defined her, you know, at least before she came to Hollywood, which was Ecstasy, which which, uh, made her a worldwide celebrity in a way followed her into Hollywood because, as you say, I think, in the film, that there were two views of women in Hollywood. One was as a prostitute, the other as a virgin. And, of course, this automatically yeah. put her into the, to the first category. So right. it's something she had to, 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 to work against. And at the same time, I think ecstasy and the work, in fact, of the filmmaker that she made it with, Gustav Mahati, other films like Eroticon, uh, From Saturday to Sunday Morning, and, and sex was very much the subject of his films, is a very yeah. interesting film. Oh, I think it's a beautiful film, and I encourage people to go and see Ecstasy. I think it's, in fact, in a way, it lasts better than her Hollywood films do. It doesn't seem as dated. It doesn't have very much talking at all. It's it's a, a very beautiful, impressionistic film, Ecstasy. What happened with Ecstasy is it, it functioned like a kind of a Kim Kardashian sex tape for Hetty. It made her incredibly famous, incredibly fast but in a way that would mark her for the rest of her career because she did the first orgasm ever on screen in 1933, can you imagine? And it, of course, uh, made her a marked woman in some ways. But what happened really was that she was from this time and place that was that should be incredibly familiar to us now. It was Vienna between World War One and World War Two, and it looks and sounds and feels in many ways more like our world today than post-World War Vienna would. It was a time of great liberation for women in many ways, and also sexual freedom, uh, especially for women in the arts, which we go into a little bit in the film. And so Hetty was kind of functioning like a, a woman from today when she was a teenager and felt liberated enough to do a film where she does an orgasm on screen completely naked. And then the world shifted massively around her, which is something we also know it can do very fast, especially when politics change quickly around you. 
And the Nazis come in and they change Austria into a place where women have a much more circumscribed role. And she flees to the United States where, again, the Hayes Code is just kicked in. And again, sex is, is verboten. And so ecstasy is it becomes this baggage that she has to always explain away. And, you know, nobody can understand that it's actually that she comes from a world that was almost from the future. Uh, was she ended? Did she end up trapped by her beauty? I mean, she's got this end, this reclusive end where she's getting a lot of plastic surgery and goes into a Sunset Boulevard kind of existence. Mm. Uh, mm. What? Here she is. She's so smart. Why, you know, why didn't she win? I guess is the question people are asking. Why didn't she win? Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated question because you have to understand first that Hetty didn't win before she did the plastic surgery. By the time she was in her early 40s, the, she hadn't done much plastic surgery at all and she looked beautiful, but she didn't look like Hetty Lamar from Algiers and these famous movies she did in the late 30s and, and early 40s. And the press turned on her. They really turned on her early and t- called her a two-headed goat and said she was disgusting. And people would shout at her in the street or say things like, you were so beautiful. And so she was assaulted from all sides for losing her beauty before she starts the plastic surgery. The plastic surgery is a response to that, is a is an attempt uh, from this very inventive mind to find a way around losing her beauty because it is it has become such a liability. And she invents ways of doing new kinds of plastic surgeries. That was one thing that we discovered during this film. We went to Beverly Hills plastic surgeons who told us, oh, my God, she was the most famous person in plastic surgery for a while. Every actress came and wanted a Hedy Lamarr. And she invented new ways of doing plastic surgery, of of hiding the scars, etc. But it didn't work because it was really pioneering work. And she was using herself as a guinea pig. And she didn't know, for instance, that you couldn't sit in the sun after a surgery like that or it would kind of melt. And so her face sort of has this melted appearance. So she does it does backfire enormously, this solution she has for her face. And she ends up completely barricaded in because she's she doesn't want to deal with the public reaction to it. Well, it's a fascinating bombshell. The Hedy Lamar story is at the Music Box Theater. Alexandra Dean is the director of the film. Congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to interview me about it today. Milos Dalek from Facets, great to talk with you. Have a great weekend, Milos. Thank you, Jerome. Great to be here. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where you can get a ticket to do something international right here in the city. And we will go to Puerto Rico for a festival that's a little like Mardi Gras. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. And as the music would indicate to you are going somewhere Latin, you are going to Puerto Rico is exactly where you're going. And with me is Omar Torres Courtright, Executive Director of the Segundo Riz Belvis Cultural Center. Good to see you, Omar. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jerome. And with him is Roy McGrath. He's a Chicago-based tenor saxophonist, and he was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Great to see you, Roy. (laughs) Nice to see you, too. What is this song we're listening to and bringing joy to us? I'm going to let uh, Roy explain because we're trying to bring New Orleans into the Puerto Rican uh, celebration, and uh, he would be the perfect guy to explain that. <laughs> of course. So this first track that we're going to listen to is a track by the four-star brass band, a Chicago brass band that plays New Orleans second-line music. And this is our uh, original composition entitled Radio. Beautiful. What fun that is, the four-star brass band. And um, explain why you're trying to bring a little Mardi Gras into the Puerto Rican uh, celebration here. Uh, What what are we... we, Because people call this celebration a Mardi Gras thing, kind of. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, So what we're celebrating is we're trying to recreate the Puerto Rican festival in San Juan. It's called the Fiestas de la Calle San Sebastian. It's uh, the biggest festival in, in, in all of Puerto Rico. And it's a very festive atmosphere. And uh, I guess the equivalent to the second lines in, in New Orleans would be our plena comparsas, which is, you know, when we bring out all of our percussion and our horns and do, you know, what, what Mardi Gras does. Walk around this. in the streets yeah, exactly. with the music. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we are going to have plena, traditional plena from Puerto Rico. Uh, the pleneros are going to jam with the New Orleans guy style mm-hmm. as well. And there's going to be, we're going to close it with a salsa band made up of all of Chicago musicians that have been in the salsa scene for, you know, decades. So we're going to have top tier talent of Latin music and then, of course, uh, these great horns and these amazing musicians of the Four Star Brass Band. And this is all happening tomorrow. And where is it happening? It's the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center. We are the oldest Puerto Rican cultural center in Chicago, and we have an amazing 6,000-square-foot uh, location, 20-foot-tall uh, ceilings. It gives the perfect uh, space, open space, for us to recreate. <laughs> for a recreate. lot of big horns. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of horns. <laughs> and there's going to be food uh, food available. There's going to be also um, uh, vendors of art uh, and uh 
along the celebration, we also want to make it about Puerto Rico and the situation that 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 right, right now is happening in Puerto Rico. I just came back from Puerto Rico doing a, a couple of humanitarian trips. And uh, Segundo Ruiz Belvis has stayed at the forefront of trying to uh, bring relief and aid to the uh, to the artists of Puerto Rico as much as to others that ha- are also suffering. And so some of the uh, proceeds and things from the fiestas are going to... Go there. Yes, exactly. The The initiative is uh, we created the Chicago Hurricane Aid for Puerto Rican Arts, and it's a way to encourage um, artistic collaborations between Puerto Ricans in the island and Puerto Ricans in the diaspora. So it's going to help us fund exchanges between uh, Puerto Rican artists from the island and Chicago as well. Uh, that's terrific. It, tell us something about being in Puerto Rico and people... You were just there last week, and still there's so much electricity out, and people still talk about it as a before and after situation. Absolutely. Definitely is uh, something that changed our our course and our history. Um, I think that it is accurate to say, despite the the numbers that the government is giving, that half of the island uh, has no power. Uh, And it is safe to say that half of the island doesn't have water either. Because uh, for the longest time, if you you add in, in terms of the water, which the government claims is at 90%, you had a lot of people that didn't have water before. So it's very hard for them to really put a number on those. And the uh, electricity is a, is a huge problem, especially in the center of the island. I was able to see from the worst of the worst to the best of the best communities that are that don't have anything, that haven't received uh, the, the support, and communities that are very well organized and have been able to pull themselves together with a little bit of government help, but mostly with the help of the other people and their neighbors that are pulling together. Um, it sounds like they're going ahead with the fiestas de la calle at, uh, in Puerto Rico, in San Juan. That is correct. That is correct, uh, which is amazing, really. It, it, it is a testament of how important these fiestas are mm-hmm. to keep the economy going, to keep the artists employed, to keep uh, businesses uh operating. Um, So there was a a huge push to really have the fiestas, and we support that push. We're going to have live streams from Puerto Rico. That's another thing. Yes. Well, that's terrific. Why don't we hear another tune? Roy, what what other tune did we... That would be Enrique Calderon's. Yeah, so uh, the closing uh, headliner for the night on Saturday at the the center is going to be Enrique Calderon, a Mexican salsa singer uh, from here, Chicago, and we're going to be listening to his original composition, Más Tiempo. Me dices que me quieres y que me amas Pero yo no sé cómo responder No es que no me gustas, solo que el amor me asusta que me hicieron daño al corazón una vez Veo posibilidades en tus ojos Tienes lo que quiero en una mujer Pero siendo yo sincero Siento que estamos corriendo A esta velocidad seguro me vas a perder Lo que rápido viene, muy rápido se va acelerada y me estás dejando atrás necesito más tiempo tengo miedo de huir para nunca volver 
Y aunque sé que lo quiero desarrollar Tiene que ser con calma y control Que yo no aguanto la presión De estar en una carrera a la mar Lo que rápido viene, muy rápido se va Vas acelerada y me estás dejando atrás Necesito Wow, there's Enrique Calderon. You can see him tomorrow at the Fiesta de la Calle at the Segundo Ríos, Ríos Dolphys Cultural Center on Armitage Avenue in Chicago. With me is Roy McGrath, a tenor saxophone. Is your horn in there, Roy, somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The baritone sax, yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic and super sil silky, satisfying, <laughs> unbelievable. Thank you. Um, tell us more about the artists who are going to be there. Of course. Well, uh, we've heard from the Four Star Brass Band. Uh, we've also heard from uh, Enrique Calderón. Um, we also will be hearing from Los Pleneros de Don Segundo, which, uh, as Omar mentioned, is a plena group uh, from Chicago that plays uh, plena music from Puerto Rico, which, uh, like the Four Star Brass Band, is a style of music that incorporates percussion, horn, and singing. So uh, during this event, we have... Um, two styles of music that both come from Africa. We have plena and we have the New Orleans second line. One is a, a African-American tradition from New Orleans and the other one is a Puerto Rican, Afro-Puerto Rican tradition. Um, and we're going to close out the night with a huge salsa bash. So it's going to be a night of dancing from, you know, 7 p.m. all the way till we close. Yeah. Well, that sounds super fun. Uh, tell us more about yourself. You grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh, yep. And did you start musicking in Puerto Rico? Um, uh, in a way, I did. I started playing about 10 years ago in about uh, 11th grade. And then uh, I actually went to New Orleans to study my undergrad. Ah. That's where I got in touch with the uh, second line tradition. Um, and my connection to uh, my Puerto Rican roots really didn't happen until I left uh, Puerto Rico and felt the need to... Uh, uh, relate, you know, um, it's one of those things where uh, salsa music, which I love, uh, I didn't really study it uh, from a academic point of view until I left the island. Um, you could say that I formed myself musically uh, by leaving and looking back at what I missed. Uh, what about the artists who are there now? How, mm -hmm. how do you feel about what, what they're going through and uh, how we can help? It's really interesting. I've talked to a lot of artists in the in the last uh, four months since the hurricane. Um, Things are looking a lot better for artists. Uh, for a while there, it was really scary because, you know, no electricity, no water, uh, no funds for, for the arts in Puerto Rico. Uh, a lot of people uh, have already moved to uh, the United States looking for more work. Um, but a lot of places uh, have uh, really done a good job at bringing the art back, you know. And that's why it's really important that the Fiestas de la Calle San Sebastián uh, – are, are back up. I can't imagine like how difficult it must be to produce this event in these circumstances. And the fact that they have live music and live art throughout all of it is a is a game changer for the Puerto Rican art scene in Puerto Rico. Yeah, the the <clears throat> the, the festival budget in Puerto Rico was reduced to half. Wow. So and they extended the festival. So they talked to the artists about, you know, we're going to make it work. We're all going to be in this together. And everybody came to an agreement and they did reduce because it wasn't it wasn't well seen to spend a lot of money in these fiestas during these times. Sure. Mm -hmm. So they reduced the budget in half and they asked the artists, 
do you guys want to work with us on this circumstances? And the overwhelming response of the artists is that we had to do it. So that's how the Fiesta stayed this year. Um, and I think that by us doing this in Chicago, we're showing support to that. And uh, we have an, an entire line of programming that's going to be around exchanges and collaborations with Puerto Rican musicians. Thanks to the Chicago Community Trust, we've been able to make that a really impactful series where every month we're going to be having an event at Segundo Ruiz Belvis from many residencies, from uh, visual arts to murals to um, um, exhibits and uh, and also lots of music, of course. So every every month you'll have a connection to Puerto Rico events. Yes. That yes. sounds awesome. Yes. And people should check it out at the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center website. You've got lots of good information mm -hmm. there. And I hope lots of people show up to dance tomorrow from 6 to 11 at the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center on Armitage Avenue there, 4046 West Armitage. Uh, great to see you guys. And thanks for bringing this terrific music. And Thank you giving us a buoyant end to the week. We sure needed it. Omar Torres Courtright is the executive director of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center, and Roy McGrath is a Chicago-based tenor saxophonist who grew up in Puerto Rico. Great to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Monday on Worldview, we'll look back at our year since President Trump's inauguration, and we'll unpack the Women's March and all the rest. Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineer Daniel Musisi curates our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.